Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Them Before Us podcast. This is Jen. And I am Katie Faust. And we are chatting today about chapter three of the Them Before Us book, Gender Matters. This is a very hot topic in culture right now. It comes up a lot. What is gender? Does it really matter? Is it something someone just decides for themselves? Um, you talk. You start the chapter by talking about the advances of women's opportunities and freedoms in the United States in particular, you know, Title IX, things like that. And there's this really good quote to start us off um, in the book where you say, we made the mistake of confusing equality with sameness in our quest to defy superficial stereotypes. And we're attempting to erase the natural critical differences between men and women instead of celebrating their complementary uniqueness. Maybe speak to that a little bit. You know, we had we can point to problems in our culture or in cultures around the world where it seems like women were definitely subjugated or considered as second-class citizens and we've made advances, but then how maybe have we overcorrected? You know, I'll start out by saying, you know, we talk about gender in this chapter and what we're saying is biological sex differences. The culture has sort of created this idea that gender can be separate from your biological sex, right? Your gender is sort of an innate sense of your maleness or your femaleness. We're like, uh, garbage. Yeah, that's garbage. Really, gender is just another word for biological sex. I believe that when we started to use the word sex to describe intercourse more, we then kind of switch to using gender to distinguish male and female on things like forms and birth certificates and um, driver's licenses and things like that. So we're really using gender kind of in the historical sense of this denotes male or female. And those differences matter, especially in the parent-child relationship. So we do talk about how there have been incredible advances for the sake of gender equality across the globe. And we look on those countries or those cultures where women don't have equal rights. And we think that that is a catastrophe for those women and girls. So we absolutely believe in and support the idea that men and women are equal. And you can believe that and advance that idea without saying that they are exactly the same. In fact, our differences are actually critical, not just to the making of new children, but of the raising of those new children, new children. Yeah. I'd made a note that, um, that we basically consider sex and gender to be synonymous terms and we will use it that way as we go through the podcasts. But, um, while there is more to being a man or woman than XX or XY, it can't be less than XX and XY. There are aspects of what it means to be a man or a woman that you can see are different from Canada to Mexico to China to Kenya. But at the end of the day, yeah, we are talking about a biological reality and there's only two genders. There's male and there's female. The first section of, of this chapter we say gender is not a social construct. So I looked up some definitions for this because I was like, what even, what does social construct even mean? Merriam-Webster defines social construct as an idea created by and accepted by people in society. Another definition said, this isn't an objective reality, it's the result of human interaction. So that's what social construct means. So basically when someone says gender is a social construct, they're saying 
to be male or female is not something that's objective, objectively true or rooted in something objective. It's the result of people, groups, whether it's time, culture, that have decided what those things mean. So that's what that means. And quick note, I looked this up as well, and we were chatting about this earlier, but we make a distinction when we're talking about male and female, and there's only two, we are not talking about intersex individuals. So this comes up a lot with gender identity conversations. And intersex is defined as when chromosomal sex is inconsistent with your phenotypic sex. And that there's 0.018 of the population, according to the National Center for Biotechnology and Information, which is the government website, 0.018% of the population fits into that category. So it really depends on how you define intersex, right? Because there's chromosomal abnormalities that would connote a intersex condition. But now there's also um, intersex conditions as it relates to your external sex organs. And that actually can be defined very broadly. Like if there's hyposplasia, uh, you know, where the the opening at the penis is off center or somewhere else. I mean, like, I think under some definitions that could be considered an intersex category, any kind of malformation. So, uh, and honestly, I think that some of that is happening um, to justify the idea that there's a third gender. So um, all that to say, like, I have met people with intersex conditions who have very challenging lives as a result. We absolutely have a great deal of compassion for them, but because, just because there are some chromosomal or malformation of genitalia at birth, in no way you know, should be construed to believe that there is anything other than male or female, right? There simply is male and female, and then there are some people for whom development did not happen properly. And those intersex conditions in no way um, make male and female categories obsolete. It's kind of like the question of when you go to buy a pair of gloves, it's like, do glove makers make gloves with five fingers on each hand? Like, that's just universally true. But we know there's many uh people who have extra fingers or have lost fingers or different things but we have to we've kind of talked about this when it comes to public policy we have to be able to sort of have fundamental discussions based on what is the norm and and go off of that while holding compassion and then still being able to talk about how what are the accommodations for someone who has four fingers for example or has different special needs we can still talk about those accommodations but in terms of public policy and are we talking about these large big concepts we have to be able to have something we kind of agree on like humans typically do to adopt a child and isn't that better than being raised by abusive biological parents right so now you're appealing to two different edge cases and pitting them against one another so we do need to address edge cases they are a real part of these conversations they can never be used to overturn or dismiss what is very obviously the ideal or the norm um, that needs to be recognized and upheld if we're going to see justice, especially for children in any of these areas. Right. Yeah, that's good. All right, let's talk about um, what you wrote in the book is that, um, are there differences between a male and a female that even start at conception? It's interesting because there is, um, They've actually done so like where we spend the first part of the book kind of talking about how gender is not a social construct. And we can know that by looking at populations that have zero social influence. And we can 
validate that male and female are different based on populations that are immersed in male and female mm -hmm. social you know, messaging. So the first um, population that we talk about are fetuses, male and female fetuses, yeah. where they've done like brain scans on unborn babies and seen that there are brain differences in unborn babies. Those brain differences cannot be attributed to social factors or um, biases or a social construct. Like there has been no social. The only social that there's been is the connection between mother and baby yeah. at that point. Um, we go on to talk about the populations that are immersed in messaging about male and female. Um, and we cite several studies. Um, there's been now two or three massive studies that have compared um, men and women across different egalitarian societies, right? So yeah. these are the societies that have the most freedom for women, where they have the most career opportunities, educational opportunities, um, and that these egalitarian societies that are really telling women, you can be anything that you want to be, right? No limits, like no restrictions. And those societies tend to produce the most feminine men and the most, I'm sorry, the most feminine yeah, women right. and the most masculine men, even down to like their body types, right? So the, you know, some of these Nordic countries that are considered so egalitarian, they have the most feminine women oh. and the most masculine men, like even their bodies are different. But in those societies, women tend to choose careers that are more nurturing focused. Mm -hmm. And men tend to choose careers that have to do more with objects and things. So really this idea that gender is a social construct is refuted by populations, whether they have no social exposure or they have massive social exposure. The only way that you can believe that men and women, male and female differences are socially constructed is if you are completely disconnected from the objective world. Right. This chapter was actually one of my favorites when I initially read the book. You can see how many highlights I have here. But I think the Gender Matters chapter was the most sort of eye-opening in terms of the differences between men and women. And I like this quote you say, however small the differences, our species could not exist without them. And like you said, this makes a difference when we talk about marriage. If we're saying a man and a woman actually complement each other, but it also makes a huge difference when we talk about parenting, the children they produce. I'll just go through, this is starting on page 54 of the book, if you want to check these out, but I've loved, there's so many good things in here that might blow your mind. I'll just read through some kind of random differences, and if you want to comment, you totally can. So one thing that probably won't surprise most women, I do some working out now, and I know this is 100% true, men have more muscle mass because muscle burns more calories than fat. They burn calories faster than women even when they're sitting on the couch. <laughs> the question's going to be, which of these differences is the most annoying to you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Let me just say, my husband got me an um, Apple Watch. And it's been interesting because I have overestimated how many calories that I am burning oh. in several different activities that I'm doing. But we have a Friday morning date, um, standing date. We walk every Friday morning together. And I am amazed. He burns like twice as many calories walking as me, same distance. Oh, wow. yeah. yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That's just nuts. I, Longer legs? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but like he, an it's an outrage is what it is. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I can't sue the manufacturer, I guess, but it is blows me away that, um, yeah, that he just naturally, he can get so fit so fast. Like he goes and works out and he comes back and literally I can see a difference in him in two weeks. Whereas me, I just slog and slog and slog. I'm like, well, 
I guess my arms aren't as flabby as they were before, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> well, and women are designed to carry more fat than men, obviously, right? Um, men's bones, tendons, and ligaments are stronger and denser. Men, on average, have a height advantage of about six inches over women. And this was interesting. Um, this was data from the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, women suffer double the combat injuries of their male counterpoint counterparts, which is pretty crazy. I know there's a lot of controversy, uh, probably even more within the conservative side of women being in the military at all. Definitely. And I really like the idea of being in the military. I think I wanted to wear a uniform. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm attracted to like the discipline and the order of it all. Um, but yeah, the idea of women being in combat roles and at the front line and having to just be like showering and in a foxhole next to men. I mean, there's a lot of people that are very uncomfortable with some of this and, you know, maybe it will in part be answered by some of this. I was at West Point on Sunday because my daughter attended one of their soccer camps and um, I've got four kids. They're all great. But my daughter, my second daughter is very, she just has such grit. She's so she's fit, she's driven, and she would slay in the military. She would slay in the military, like especially personality-wise, she gets along with a lot of different kinds of people, takes direction well, but you cannot cross her. Like if you get up to the line, she would be like, that is a no and I will not budge. Um, and so, but I thought about if she had to go hand to hand, I mean, she's very fit. Yeah. She's very driven. Like she works out more than I do, which I mean, I'm not saying I do it a lot, but she, she's even the days when she doesn't have intense soccer practice, you know, some of those days she still goes to the gym, but she could not hold her own if she was taken captive. You know what I mean? Right. Like there is just an advantage that men have over women, no matter how much they train, no matter how fit they are. This is simply a reality. And, um, I, I have serious problems with women in combat, mm -hmm. mainly of because of how it changes the men's behavior mm -hmm. to the women in their unit no longer. And I, and I'm just saying what I've heard from other men because I've asked men in, the military about sure. this um like how do you feel about that and he goes well it's not bad in the sense that like they are useful to the military they have really good skills the problem is that every guy in the unit is focused on protecting her rather mm -hmm. than going after the bad guy wow. so anyway kudos to everybody that serves i have so much admiration but women are at a disadvantage physically and you can absolutely see that in sports competitions where men are you know where where mediocre men are now sweeping track competitions and swimming right, and all yeah. of that, right? You had the Serena Williams played the um, the high school tennis oh, star. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. It was like he was a high schooler tennis kid and he wiped her out. And she's, a, she's an incredible tennis player, right? There's just no comparing the physical differences between male and female. Men are stronger, they just are. And as we're going to see in the theater of parenting, that's a really awesome benefit for kids. Right. This was another, oh, sorry, to that point. Um, I remember as a preteen with my family, we were watching the news or something and they were talking about the standards for firefighters and you were, you could watch the video. The male firefighters were required to carry the dummy. It was like a human weighted dummy. Oh, firefighters are over there. That's weird. One of your neighbor's houses is on fire. Um, they were required to carry it down the stairs. The female firefighters were allowed to drag the dummy down the stairs. Which is interesting if you're the one getting carried or drugged right. down the stairs, right? <laughs> but that was, it was one of those things where even as, you know, 
was I a second wave feminist when I was 13 years old? I don't know. But I liked the idea of being in the military and why not? Why shouldn't we be able to do these things? But I still had a sense of it's embarrassing if women have a different standard than men do. There was a point in time when the Marines, well, no, the Marines had a different standard for men and women. They trained them separately, which was unique and I think probably better. But that's a little bit in me is like, okay, well, if you want to be in the military and you're a woman that can meet the standard, that to me seems valuable. That seems like equality to me. It seems a little more, it's the opposite direction, kind of embarrassing if it's like, well, men's standards here and women we acknowledge are weaker and not as good and your standards down here. Then I'm kind of like, to me, that feels like a little bit of a star next to your name on the hammer Marine, but which... Hey, I couldn't even hack it at the women's standards. So all the respect <laughs> for you. Anyway, this uh, this next one blew my mind. I remember telling this to people and they had not heard this before, but um, the quote in the book is numerous studies have shown a drop of as much as 40% in men's testosterone levels following the birth of their children, which is so fascinating. Again, Christian perspective. I'm like, God designed all of this so perfectly to go together. What's amazing about that, well, there's a lot of amazing things, is, and, and I've, I've asked a few people about this, why that is, um, and nobody really knows why. There's something about, is it like her form, pheromones that she's putting out mm. while she's pregnant that causes a drop in him, in his testosterone? They don't know, but they know that this drop in testosterone happens. Now, that is incredibly important, especially because women are not supposed to have intercourse for six weeks after they give birth, mm -hmm. right? And so it helps very much for the guy to have a lower sex drive for that time after she gives birth. But the other thing that it does is it actually wires him and prepares him to be a little more gentle and nurturing towards the child, right? Because the testosterone um, fuels the competitiveness and aggressiveness mm -hmm. that is kind of one of the things that make fathers so wonderful and important. But in that moment, he doesn't need competitive and aggressiveness. He needs more tenderness. And that drop in testosterone is accompanied by an increase in vasopressin, which is the um, hormone that increases protectiveness. Mm. So it's very, very interesting to me. You know, I watched news reports of Andy Cohen, um, who is a gay celebrity I should know. I don't know. He's Bravo. It, oh, okay. Whatever. He's, he's an important big gay celebrity. He's now had two children through surrogacy, but after his first son was born, he was clubbing. He was out clubbing like two or three weeks later. Mm. You know, he was still out there kind of living this highly charged, you know, I assume sexual social life. Whereas men who actually have to be with the women that are carrying their babies, um, naturally it prepares their body to be more oriented around the home, around the woman, around the child. And he cut out the woman. He cut out the biological, the, the birth mother. He cut out the genetic mother. He wasn't around any woman when she was gestating his baby. And so his body didn't get the benefit of that biological recalibration, right? And yeah. so there wasn't anything to lower his testosterone levels. Wow. So it's it's interesting to me. It's This really is a design um, that benefits man, woman, and child. Right. Well, and to your point, then that would apply in the same way to a heterosexual couple that's using a surrogate, right? Because they're just, those hormonal changes are not happening, I would assume, within that couple, because that woman, most of the time, from the stories we've read, does not, like, live full-time with the family, you know, the Kardashians or whatever. So, whoa, my mind just got blown again. This is awesome. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. 
podcast. Make sure you head over to thembeforeus.com to find us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, donate, and more. Thanks for joining the movement. back talking about gender matters and another funny um thing you talk about in the book is that both men and women have testosterone but men obviously have more and for women the higher estrogen levels mean that women catch colds left less often so their immune system fights that stuff a lot better but then with men they actually do get colds either they hit them harder or they feel more of the pain than, than women do. So you, you said something, well, you tell me what you say in the book. Well, just that the man cold is real. (laughs) And I think that every wife is like, you get, you know, if you get a cold and then your husband gets it next or vice versa, he's like, help me bring me soup. And, and the wife is like, okay, I literally just had that. And I was still carpooling and cooking and cleaning and doing all of the running around. Like literally it's not that bad, but the reality is actually it really might be worse for him and your bodies are just different. And I think this again is the incredible design of male and female because, uh, you know, thankfully my kids don't get sick a whole lot. We've really, really worked to make sure that they eat well and get outside and exercise. And, you know, I'm very, very, very careful about any kind of medical intervention I give them because I want their bodies to be like max operation. But um, there's been times where my kids have been sick and I have been sick and nothing has changed. I still wake up at the same time. I'm still doing every single thing that I normally do. Um, Somebody still has to care for the kids. Um, And then my husband gets sick and I am still doing it all for him, you know? And and I will say that when I do get sick, Ryan is incredibly understanding. I just hardly ever get sick. And when I do, very often my life doesn't change at all. So yes, the man cold is probably real and you should repent to your husband's ladies. Uh, you talk about too, so this is a, um, again, more, a more stereotypical difference, but many people are aware of this idea of like men having more singular focus and women being multitaskers. And I actually saw a clip yesterday of a dad who was on his phone on the couch and the baby was in like the little rolling chair that can kind of roll around. And the baby rolled up to him at the coffee table, got his coffee off the table, backed away, (laughs) and was drinking it it was like a one one and a half year old or something and he just didn't like notice out of the corner of his eye but it's it's not that he's being some bad person but it's like no whatever he's looking at he's that's the only thing he's thinking about in part there's a joke someone said like if the husband or the wife has to run back into the house to grab something like good luck because for the husband it's like Okay, well, you he went into the house. He stepped over the things at the bottom of the stairs that were supposed to go up. He went all the way up. He grabbed exactly that thing and he came back out in 30 seconds. When the wife goes into the house, she might be gone five, six, seven minutes. But she also, you know, oh, I'm just going to switch the laundry really quick. I'm bringing that stuff to the bottom of the stairs. Oh, I saw some cups in someone's room. I'm just going to put them in the dishwasher. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to set the crock pot on and comes back to the car, forgets the thing or whatever. So there's just those differences. But you talk about... That's actually, um, those are brain differences. Women have a larger corpus callosum. Am I saying that wrong? Callosum. This thick bundle of nerves connects the two brain hemispheres. It's larger size in women makes it easier for them to jump between hemispheres. So they're able to switch back and forth all the tasks. Where are the kids? What are they doing? And then men have a stronger connectivity 
within the hemispheres. Oh, within the hemispheres, not switching back and forth across them, but within the hemisphere, which gives them more of an ability to set their mind on one thing, a goal or project. They're more capable of single-minded uh, focus. Yes. And everybody that's in a marriage is like, yeah, and <laughs> yes, you like the whole thing you just described my life of like, I'm just going to do this and this and this. Every room that I go into, I'm like working on something in that room. Yeah. And I was taking my son to the dentist this morning and he said, um, I don't know, I, he said something about how, oh, I was driving behind a car that was really slow. And I'm like, come on, like, can you get up to the speed limit? You're like wasting my time. And he said, this is how I feel when you tell me, this is my 13 year old, this is how I feel when I tell you to tell me to go to the car and get in the car and you're going to be there in just a minute. Uh -huh. And you aren't. <laughs> you have to do all these other things yeah. and it's true i'm like well let me fill up my water bottle and i have to make sure the dogs have water and um oh i do have to switch the laundry and since i'm in here i need i may as well like make sure that the toilet paper is like refilled mm -hmm. in the bathroom and right. all of that because that's like how i work and um i will say too that it's the whole men single-minded focus thing it is totally real and i even noticed it with my kids that when they were really little and i said okay you guys we need to go and um, I, I, you know, would say two minutes, we're going to head out, la, la, la. Um, but my daughters could generally jump up and transition to mm. where we needed to go. But if one of my boys was in the middle of something, mm. right, building a Lego project or in the middle of reading a book, it was hard for them to, harder for them to switch gears. Mm -hmm. And that is because our brains are different, yep. right? It is easier for women to jump around from one thing to another. It is a gift that men have that they can single-mindedly focus on one thing. So if my husband puts his mind to, I am going to clean out the garage, he cleans the garage. Yeah. And if I clean out the garage, <laughs> I clean it for 37 minutes and then I get distracted by other things. So this single-mindedness is pretty incredible, especially if you look traditionally at the role of men to protect and provide. Mm -hmm. It's pretty great to see that singular threat to the family and go after it, right? And it's pretty incredible for women to be able to, you know, like I load the dishes while I'm on the phone with a work call and directing the kids mm -hmm. and roasting vegetables and all of that, like to maintain the home and do my job and be responsive to the kids' needs. I really do need to be doing two or three, three things at once. I mean, right. you come to my house yeah. and we have work <laughs> meetings and I am loading the dishwasher yeah. right i'm always chopping doing, a million vegetables chopping all the vegetables yeah. yeah i'm always doing two or three things at once and actually i i work pretty well you know that that, that works for me well think too so even from a more secular like humanist perspective like an evolutionary perspective this would seem to track with the idea of if more the men were the hunter gatherers and even think like it wasn't until more recently that men and women worked away from each other. Like dad leaving the property is kind of a newer thing in history, whether it's like little house on the prairie, like dad's in the field, but you're all in the same home. Men tended to be more here. I need to go plow the field. Mom is like laundry day, children cooking stuff. I'm preparing whatever animals were hunted i'm preparing whatever uh you know we're using the fur or skin to make you know you look at the when you think about who's gonna who would survive in the apocalypse and you go back in time to like 1800s or whatever i don't look at those women like wow you're weak and you stayed in the home and you just you know you're not even cool i have a college degree i'm like well they would survive and i would not survive as soon as the grocery store shuts off I don't really know where the food comes from, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, it is pretty cool seeing the differences 
And then, and that doesn't mean that women don't like mowing the lawn or, you know, there definitely are women that are more singular focused, but we're talking about, again, those generalities. Okay. Oh, this was, this was an interesting one. The next one in the book that I like too is this, again, is sort of one of those stereotypical things of, um, let's say the wife is having an issue or just wants to talk about a problem. And so the wife is sharing it. And then you talk about the husband or the boyfriend or whatever gets into, or the dad or the brother goes into captain problem solver mode. And you say, guys tend to detach from the interpersonal aspects of the problem and focus on the facts. Women's brains are wired more for intuition and emotion. So women tend to approach the problem from the standpoint of the relationship, which can create some conflict when both sides don't think through the, what's the end goal or is the point I'm just listening, you know? So we talk in this book, um, especially this, I think this chapter more than any other, we are talking about tendencies, mm -hmm. right? Women tend to do X, men tend to do X, right? Fathers tend to be this way. Women, mothers tend to be that way. And it's important to say that in, and these are generalities because they generally are true, but in, most individuals and most marriages, you're going to find areas where the couple deviates from the norm. So this is an area where, for example, Ryan and I deviate from the norm. He is more intuitive than I am. And I tend to be more of the problem solver. So if we're processing on our Friday morning walk with like some challenge that he's going through or I'm going through, um, I, I'm just kind of low emotion. Like I don't have high emotional needs either for the positive or the negative, which can be a bit challenging because sometimes that means that Ryan's not getting like the connection that he would like to have with me because I'm like, let's just think it through, figure out the right thing and move ahead. <laughs> and um, so we can recognize that male and men and women are different, but that doesn't mean that every single thing that we are talking about is going to be exactly true for every man and every woman. Sure. I definitely do emphasize personal relationships when we're problem solving. Like, I'm like, oh, but what about this person? It's going to affect them. That'll be hard for them. Ryan's actually really good at that too, though. Um, but I will say that I probably am captain problem solver in a lot of ways. And Ryan's a little more like, why can't we just like connect and chat about this? Why does it always have to be like, and I'm like, cause there's things that need to get done. I mean, we don't have all day to just sit around and talk about this. So yes. That's funny. That's cool. Hope, I mean, that is, that's been refreshing to me just thinking back like to episode two, sharing about just different gender stuff I experienced to know there's such a spectrum of it's okay to feel and think and be interested in all these different things. It doesn't mean you're not a male or female. Like we said at the beginning of this, it's not, it, it's not less than my genes. I know my chromosomes. I, I know I'm a woman, but that there can still be some wiggle room. There's still a lot of ways that I can express being a woman in my cultural context and in 2023. Okay, let's chat for a minute about why we're why our society is starting to use the term parenting all the time now, intended parents, and we're, they're trying to kind of erase the terms mother and father. We chat in the book about, um, I think it was California made a rule for was it boards of nonprofits or boards of organizations? I think, I think publicly held companies had to have a certain representation of women on their boards. So it's interesting. So this is California. It's a very blue state, very progressive state. Is acknowledging at some level there's something valuable or different about women that they should be included and represented on your board. And when we think about political office or um, this was the first vice president we've had that's 
been a woman. Right. We've had female candidates for vice president, but this is our first woman who's vice president. But whereas on the more conservative side, we were grounded in the sense of like, well, a woman is a an objective reality. And that's a term that means something, the same thing all the time. The other side, more progressive side would say being a woman is it's a social construct. And so biological men could identify as women. So it's a little hard because it's like, then why is this significant to you to have a woman be the vice president? if it's just kind of can be up for grabs. So while some places in our culture are wanting more of that equality and representation where we are not seeing them value that is marriage. So speak to that and then why people want to use the term parenting now and why we should not do that. Well, it's interesting because for the other side, gender matters when they want it to. Mm -hmm. And there really isn't a lot of consistency about whether or not it matters everywhere. So for example, you know, Biden wanted to pick a woman, not just a woman, but a black woman. And same thing with his Supreme Court justice pick, right? He wanted to pick a black woman. And so there is an acknowledgement that the female voice or the female experience is valuable and distinct from what a man could bring in those situations. And we see that, you know, celebrated, right? When when a female Supreme Court justice is elevated, if she has the right kind of political ideology, she's celebrated for her womanness, right? And that it's groundbreaking that um, a woman has been, you know, elevated to this level. And we talk in the book too about how there are a variety of countries around the world that actually mandate a certain percentage of women to be on their um, Congress or their legislative bodies and things like that. So we see in these different institutions of government or business, this recognition that male and female matters. And yet (laughs) there is one institution that the left has spent the last decade seeking to destroy. And it is the one institution that actually gets the gender balance exactly right 100% of the time. And that is marriage, right? Marriage that leads to the creation of new life, right? It is literally a requirement to create this new light, to have exactly 50% representation of male and female in both. And so we just point out in the book and in our work that gender seems to matter to the other side everywhere except marriage. And then all of a sudden it's a social construct. Kids don't need moms and dads. They just need to be safe and loved. You know, biology doesn't matter. Love makes a family, right? So then they they work so hard to say that men and women, well, women especially are so valuable and important in all of these other institutions and areas. And then all of a sudden they're like, what, what are you talking about? male, female, that doesn't matter in marriage. Like kids just need safety. They just need good caregivers, right? They just need parents. So we talk in the book about how um, parenting actually is a misnomer. There is no such thing as parenting. There is either mothering and there is fathering. All of those differences that we just talked about, the biological differences, the physical differences, the brain differences between male and female, make themselves the most clearly known and I would say are the most valuably um, expressed in the home. That is the place where we most need male and female differences. And those brain differences, physical differences, um, result in different kinds of interactions with children. And they're so different. The way that dads interact with children is so different from the way moms interact with children that many experts would say there really is no such thing as parenting. Mm. There is either mothering or there is fathering and kids need both. They would say men cannot mother. Mm -hmm. They literally cannot mother. 
Women cannot father. You can't, women cannot do for children and be for children what a man will be for children. So we are getting into this world where we're talking increasingly about parenting and for the supporter of children's rights. Um, we reject that, you know, we say it's mothering and it's fathering and kids deserve both. We use that. We use this reasoning when we, uh, talk about same sex parenting as well, which was, I remember you using this phrase and I've used it a ton when I interact with people on social media, when two men use a surrogate and an egg donor, or they adopt a child, we can acknowledge it's not the ideal and still say those men could be great fathers. We are not saying that someone because of how they identify or who they're partnered with cannot be a good mother or father. And we're super careful to say that. So two men can be great fathers, but they can't mother. Two women can be great mothers, but they cannot father. That's why it's not ideal. It's not because we're saying all of, you know, all those people are abusive or they're going to do something crazy or bad to their kids or they're bad just because it's two men. It's this idea of there's a complementary difference between men and women the child has a mother and a father. And if two men have a child, you know that child lost a mom. If two women have a child, you know the child lost a dad. That goes for single parents as well. When we see that, we know the child has lost something. Uh, just jumping again off of um, dad's dadding different than mom's mom, uh, chat about just discipline and how uh, mom and dad talk to kids from what you found when you wrote the book. There's several areas where you can see the distinctions between mothers and fathers very clearly. And um, how parents talk to kids is one way. Um, the, the easiest example is that women tend to use more simplified language. So so you should just fact check me the next time you're around somebody that has a little yeah. child, right? Look at how the mom talks to the baby and look at how the dad talks to the baby. The mom simplifies her language right down to the child's level. She will talk to the two-year-old as if she is a two-year-old, right? She will say, owie, owie, did you get a boo-boo? Oh, come give mommy some snuggles, mm -hmm. right? And the dad will say, dude, that is a gnarly rug burn. You have been doing some cookies in the backyard again, haven't you? Or, or dude, come over here. Like, like, give me some love. Give me some love. You know, they're, they, dads talk to kids the way they talk to everybody else. And moms talk to kids right down at their level. And so that's pretty incredible because the child always has one parent that where they can understand every single thing that they're saying. But they also have one parent who is constantly pushing them to cognitively advance, right? Who's constantly using words they're unfamiliar with and expanding their vocabulary. Um, discipline is another area where dads tend to just be the brick wall that kids run into. Yeah. I told you to do this, go do this now. Mm -hmm. Moms tend to leverage their relationship. Honey, I know that you said that um, you were going to take the garbage out, but I see that it's still not done. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to need you to put down your homework and get that done. Oh, no, I'm well, okay. You want to negotiate? I'll negotiate. You know, I mean, like yeah. women tend to like not, they tend to be a little more, like we said before, relationally bringing the relational aspects of problem solving, whereas dads are like, no, this is the answer. Just do it. And it's very helpful to have both of those approaches when it comes to disciplining kids, because they really do offer a couple different aspects that reflect the realities of the world um, when it comes to crossing a line. Yeah.
there's differences too in just how moms and dads or men and women in a sense play with kids. And so I don't have any children, but I play with many of my friends' children. So it's funny, I tend to be more of the, I like playing and leading the imaginative, like setting up an obstacle course in the backyard sort of thing. But I still consistently say, be careful, which I remember a study when, when I was in school, psychology class, uh, one of my classes, they measured how many times women versus men said, be careful on a playground and women, it was like exponentially more. And so I realized I'm still, I still feel a cautious uh, thing when I'm hanging out with kids. And um, I think you had pointed this out when I still play with kids and, and maybe we'll say, oh, come on, you can do it. And there's more of that, a little bit of that push, but I still am very focused on, are we getting along? Hey, you know what? your brother's asking for that and you've already had a turn. Are you, can you please share with them? You know, so I'm still, I'm still playing with kids, even though I have the freedom because I'm more like the fun aunt energy. I'm still doing it in the way a woman does versus the way more of a man would. And I remember seeing this in just other family members too, you know, women, probably most women listening to this have felt uncomfortable with some dad or your brother or a friend chucking their kid 20 feet up into the air and the kid loves it, screaming, enjoying themselves, or dad pushing the kids on the swing super, super high, or dad saying, come on, get to the top of that. You know, it just seems like the way men are looking at kids is a lot of like drive and let's accomplish. And we're going to do something that you feel scared to do. And women tend to be a lot more like, honey, come on, like, don't make them do that. Or be careful. Are you holding them? You know, just more cautious in that way. And so it's cool to see even those differences as uh, observers, whether you have kids or not. Yes, this is definitely an area where I think you could fact check us again if you went to a play equipment and you watched which parent is saying, be careful, be careful, oh no, and which one is like, go higher, go stronger, go bigger, go longer. And it's really incredible. It's really incredible to have one parent. And, and um, I actually was just on Louise Perry's um, podcast a couple weeks ago, and she said, you know, once she heard me talk about male-female differences, she's like, I see it everywhere now, mm. everywhere. Like her, she gave, she shared this story about um, her two-year-old like tripped over a truck or, or something like that, and um, immediately she was over there, hand on the brow, oh yeah. baby, are you okay? And the dad immediately was like, well, I guess that's what happens when you're not too careful or whatever. And it's really incredible. We talk in the book about how mom sort of represents the home, right? The small world that's safe, nurturing, protective, and dads represent the world. And the world is will slam you with consequences and how incredible to have one of each and how awful if you only had one or two that was constantly saying, be careful, are you okay? Coddle, coddle, coddle. And how awful it would be to only have one or two that is like, well, think think about how you could do that differently next time. Yeah. I understand that you know you're bleeding from your head, but it's your own dang fault. Yeah. So it's really amazing to see how the nurturing side of things and the kind of push for greatness come together and create this perfect balance. Yeah. Let's finish with um, the point you make in the book is when the child has both mom and dad in the home, they see the parent that is like them in some ways, and they see the parent who's the opposite sex from them. And talk about why that's so important. Well, where do you start? Um, you know, so I've got two girls and two boys. And so my daughters, what I pray is the case is that my daughters will look at me and say, that's what womanhood looks like. I am becoming like that. And it's going to be awesome. And my boys should be able to look at my husband and say, that is what manhood looks like. I am on my way to becoming that. And it's going to be awesome. 
And for a child to not have a same-sex parent in the home, they need to find that somewhere else, right? If they're going to love themselves, love being a boy or love being a girl, they need to be able to see what the future self looks like and say, that's great. Mm -hmm. And it anchors something about their own maleness or femaleness that is so good. And, you know, side note, like a lot of the people who experience gender confusion or same-sex attraction, especially when you look at the male population, many of the men who go on to identify as gay didn't have a strong relationship with their father, or he was gone completely, or he was overcritical. So in essence, they didn't have a, a man in their life where they could say, that's what that's what manhood looks like. I'm on my way and it's going to be awesome. Something about that relationship, right? Either he said, I don't know what manhood looks like because he's gone. Or that's what manhood looks like. And that's terrible. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to go that route. So there's something about having somebody in your home that embodies who you're going to be in two years or 12 years or 20 years that helps you love yourself, right? And helps you be anchored in your own maleness or your femaleness. So that's number one. But then the other thing is my two girls can know what kind of husband they should be looking at because they have an opposite sex parent in the home. And my husband has always taken them on daddy-daughter dates, daddy-daughter retreats, um, literally has said, you cannot date a man unless he loves you, cherishes and protects you as much as I love and cherish and protect you. And they get to see their father and mother loving each other and being in love with each other. My two boys um, have me in the home who can be playful with them, but also who can show them, you know what? generally don't joke about those kinds of things around women, you know, or like they have to practice interacting with women because they're interacting with me. They hopefully should know what it looks like. You know, I hopefully am giving them a picture of a woman who is um, totally loves her femininity, very comfortable in who she is, and that that neither makes me like a boss girl that wants to dominate everything, nor a doormat who just sits there and lets whatever right. be okay, right? Yeah. So it's an opportunity to have regular daily interaction with the other half of the population. And so if you have a mom and a dad in the home, you're automatically going to get one parent. Each kid automatically will have one parent that shows them a picture of their future self mm -hmm. and one parent who shows them the kind of person they should be looking for. And if you do not have it in the home, it can be very, very hard for kids to find that example, that external example of healthy masculinity and femininity, either for their own personal formation or for them to understand what a healthy relationship looks like with somebody of the opposite sex. Yeah. <clears throat> I guess we'll actually finish with this because I thought about this question as you were talking. If we, are, If someone's listening who would say, either they didn't have those good examples growing up and so then it's kind of like so now what do i do or maybe even just someone who is a single parent or same-sex parent but is acknowledging yeah we're two women so we don't we can't give our son uh male you know we don't have that within our home what would you say to people who've like whether they feel like they've made a mistake or not but they don't have what we're talking about they don't have that ideal what would your encouragement to them be we actually tell the story in the book of a guy who I can't remember the name that we gave him in the book because yeah. I know him in real life. Yeah. And so I'm not going to say his name because I'm, I can't remember which is his real name and yeah. which is his fake name. But he said, you know, I was raised by two women and and I love them. Um, but at some point they recognized that my best friend's father 
was giving me something that I really, really needed. I needed to be with other men. I needed for him to pull me into the masculine world. And he said they were smart. They never said anything. They encouraged it, right? At some point they recognized this is something he needs that we can't give him. Mm -hmm. And they facilitated his connection with his best friend's father. Yeah. And he said, I'm always going to be grateful to that man for recognizing what I needed and offering it to me without any words. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a, well, you don't have a dad, so come on in here and right. I'll be your father. Yeah. Um, but it was just an acknowledgement of he saw what was going on. He saw that I needed this. And he said, and I'll be forever grateful to my mother's who saw it and didn't stop it mm -hmm. because they totally got that I had a deficit in my life and he was providing it for me. Um, you know, one of the best things that you can do if you're in that situation and you've never said it before is you deserve this. Yeah. It's okay to want this. If you want a relationship with your father, that doesn't make you weird. That makes you a human child. This is what human children want. This is what all human children have wanted all throughout history. So I always recommend, you know, your child has a burden and a loss because they're not being raised by their mother or their father. Don't increase the burden by forcing the child to struggle and try to sort it out alone. Mm. Acknowledge it, go first, say, you know, whether or not it happened against your will, like the dad took off mm. and wasn't willing to be a responsible parent, or if you chose to cut him out of the child's life by using a sperm donor or something like that, acknowledge it, go first, do the hard thing, bite the bullet, I'm sorry, you don't have this. I don't know if you've thought about it, but if you have, I want to be the person that you can come to. I am going to listen. I'm I'm not going to get defensive. I want you to be able to say anything that you want to me. Um, and then acknowledge your part in it if you had a part in it. Mm -hmm. um, and that will go a long way to making you the safest place for your child to put some of these challenges and these struggles. That's good. Good conversation. Hope you guys all enjoyed it. And thank you so much for joining the movement. Whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you are single, married, gay, or straight, if you are defending the rights of children, you are one of us. Thanks for joining this global movement to put them, the children, before us, the adults. <laughs>